welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor, Point Click Care. Success isn't just getting to PDPM, it's about being ready for what comes next. Learn how you can prepare to go confidently into quality-based care with Point Click Care. In Mark Parkinson's nine years as the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association, he's had to respond to a wide variety of regulatory changes and crises within the nursing home industry, specifically as they relate to for-profit operators, which his trade group represents. His sit-down with Skilled Nursing News for this podcast coincided with the latest round of national attention on skilled nursing facilities, with a so-called secret list of potentially troubled properties dominating national headlines, and prompting CMS to make changes to the information it discloses to the public. Parkinson, also the former Democratic governor of Kansas, and I ended up talking about how media scrutiny can actually be a good thing for operators in the space, as well as what he believes the average sniff will look like in five years, and why he thinks it's been a good year for the industry as a whole. Here's our conversation. Mark, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast this morning. Alex, great to be on. All right, so let's just get right into it. One of the questions that I wanted to start out with was kind of about all the recent attention that's been going on towards nursing home safety. I think it's been a little surprising to me, considering the overall mood when the Trump administration came into power. I know whenever there's a Republican in power, there tends to be this assumption that, oh, you know, they're going to be more, a little more lax on enforcement or more business friendly, so to speak. But we've seen a lot of action from the federal government looking into nursing home safety and compliance from Seema Verma's five-point plan to just today, not to date the recording of this podcast, but uh, just today we ran a story about OIG talking, saying that CMS isn't doing enough for data collection in terms of identifying nursing home abuse and neglect. I'm kind of curious about your take on this. You know, where is this coming from? And what's kind of the response? What's the best way for the industry to kind of move forward? Because it seems like we're stuck, at least right now, in another kind of negative press cycle around nursing homes. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. When you have a Republican administration and you know half the Congress being controlled by Republicans, you don't think you're going to get all this regulatory stuff and all of the chatter about care. But we certainly have. And I think it's happened for a variety of reasons. One is there's just kind of an, the fact that uh, Chuck Grassley is the chair of the Senate Finance Committee as a Republican has led the way in the whole nursing home world for about 30 or so years. And so I think that's been a part of it. Another big part of it is that the one-off really bad things that occur in nursing homes are tragic and very newsworthy. The run-of-the-mill things that we do in our buildings every single day that 99.9% of the time work out and result in really good care are really not that newsworthy. And so we've had some really bad stories that have occurred because of some incredibly bad care, and that highlights that very small percentage of cases. What we've been telling the members for the whole eight-plus years that I've been here is that the best way to combat it is to, as a sector, get better on quality. And we've done that. You, you look at the quality measures that CMS has on nursing home care, which we really focus on. And on almost all of them, as a sector, we've gotten better. But again, that huge data story just isn't as interesting as the individual horrendous cases that then end up making the headlines. So, you know, we probably need to do more than just get better collectively. We probably need to also get better about telling our stories of really great care and personalizing it to individual situations. But you're absolutely correct. 
We thought that coming into the year, there'd be a lot of discussion about nursing homes and regulations and all that. There's actually been more than we even anticipated. Yeah, especially one of the more interesting ones that came out was the two senators from Pennsylvania releasing the list of the, you know, they kind of portrayed it as a secret list, but an internal CMS document listing the properties that are under consideration for special focus, not actually on the special focus facilities list. It's kind of curious to get your take and the organization's take in general on whether or not sharing that list publicly, as CMS has said they will do, is a good idea, at least from your view. And Beyond that, you know, how do you think that information should be should be displayed for the general public? Because I know that there is some concern over whether that might be confusing for a resident or a family to look at a nursing home and say, like, well, this one could be bad, but it's on a special list. And, you know, it might not be clear. So I was kind of curious your take on that. Well, you know, a number of these investigations and activities that have taken place can actually lead to positive things. And I think the Senate Finance Committee hearing that, that was held by Grassley is an example of that. There was some really positive discussion that came out of that hearing talking about the need to adequately fund nursing homes in order to get the kind of care that we all want. I think the same is true of this effort by Senators Toomey and Casey to divulge this list, which, you know, we're all for. We we believe in transparency, and I don't think that CMS was intentionally hiding anything. It's just that no one had really ever asked for this list to be published. I think most of the listeners know that there's just a very small number of buildings every year that are put on a special focus list, but then there are, which is about, I think, 88. Then there are about 400 that receive notices that, hey, you really need to get your act together because you're getting pretty darn close to being put on the special focus list. And the actions of Senator Toomey and Casey have led to that group of 400 now being disclosed. And you know, we're fine with that. What I would say to consumers and to residents, residents and residents' family members, though, is that there's already much more meaningful information available than the, just that somebody might end up on the special focus list. And that's the information that's on Nursing Home Compare, where you can look at every single of the 15,000 nursing homes in the country and see exactly how they perform on the 24 quality measures, which I think are way, way more important than that somebody might end up on the special focus list. You principally end up on the special focus list because of a really bad surveys. Surveys can be quite subjective. The quality measures that are on Nursing Home Compare are objective measures of quality. And so I think that residents and their family members should really be focusing more on Nursing Home Compare. And then I also think that what they should be doing is they should you know, run out and visit facilities because when you tour facilities and you walk around facilities, that's really the best way to understand if the care that should be given is, is being given or not. So we don't really think it's that monumental of a thing that this list of 400 buildings is now public, but we're all for transparency. One, one other thing that I would add is that we've been lobbying CMS now for several years to add customer satisfaction to the quality measures. We, we think that the results of customer satisfaction surveys is probably the one item that would be the most helpful to people in figuring out if the buildings they're looking at going into or that they're already in are you know any good or not. And so far, we haven't succeeded with CMS in that, but we think that with all of this chatter about nursing homes that we may have a chance to get them to do that this year. 
Yeah. And uh, speaking of transparency, kind of curious about another topic that has come up sort of tangentially, but it has been brewing this idea of more transparency around nursing home ownership. And, you know, not just for residents who might be curious about who owns their nursing home, but for state regulatory agencies, you know, the uh, skyline healthcare collapse has been dominating the news in the in the skilled nursing world over the last year plus now. And some of those problems came because unscrupulous owners were approved to take over nursing homes in states that maybe were not aware of some of the problems they were having in other states. And so I'm interested in, in getting your take on you know what the organization and what you think should be done about making this information more available. And you know, like the uh, nursing home compare, what should that information look like? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, all of these topics fall into the category of the overall sector being tainted by a minority of bad providers. And whether, you know, you're talking about the special focus list or whether you're talking about these horrendous examples of bad care that occur, or you're talking about a skyline situation where some people got involved in managing way, way too many buildings when they really didn't know, you know apparently what they were doing. The whole sector gets tainted. And so one of the things I think that has been a real wake-up call for us this year is that we really need to get better about figuring out what we're going to do as a a sector about performing buildings. And so I think you'll be hearing some things from us over the next weeks and months where we really try to tackle that situation. Again, the Skyline example that you you talked about is a a really good example of that. And we're going to continue to get tainted with those types of things until until we, I think, take a more aggressive position and become more of a part of the solution. The ownership thing is complicated because there are the complicated ownership situations are primarily because of tort law. And you've got a, a, a little more than a handful of states where you've got a very aggressive plaintiff's bar and tort laws that allow one bad incident in a building to literally shut the building down. The result of that is that the lawyers have gotten really creative at developing structures to insulate owners from various litigation situations. And as a result, it's pretty hard to figure out who actually owns the buildings. That's not done for any like villainous reason other than to improve the situation as it stands from a liability situation. But it creates the perception that, you know, people are trying to hide from normal consumers who the actual owners and operators are. And that's really not the intent. The intent is really driven by liability situations. I don't know if there's a way to clarify ownership and yet still keep these separate legal structures out there. But if there's a way to do that and provide that information, I think the sector would be all for it. Yeah, because I know that that's like, it's something that we joke about around the office here is that, you know, we, myself and our reporter, Maggie Flynn, we're both trained journalists with journalism degrees. And uh, (laughs) we still find it difficult to figure out who owns these companies because, you know, there isn't a lot of publicly available information on it. And yeah, I mean, it's a a fair point. You know, I know, we obviously know that there are complex structures in place to protect individual owners and investors in the case that a lawsuit goes sideways. But yeah, that is something that I've also heard from people who are just interested in looking from at nursing homes. You know, the ownership information is just X building LLC, and there's really nothing more that we can do. I think one of the things that I'm more curious about is, you know, maybe if it's not publicly available, is there a way for states to get that information? You know, so when states go and vet 
these companies and these investors and, you know, consider whether or not to give them a license. You know, I wonder if there's a way to kind of split that difference and, you know, allow states to have some more access to that as opposed to, you know, maybe putting it on the consumer side. Sure. Well, the states absolutely have the power to do it. And unfortunately, they haven't. Now, what, what we learned from the Skyline situation is that there's an enormous variance in what states require to approve a change of ownership. Some states have a very, very thorough vetting process where they make sure that you've got experience in running nursing homes, you have a capital structure so that if things go wrong, you can keep the doors open and continue to provide quality care. And it takes time and, and there's a real vetting that's that's done. And then on the other hand, you have states, and it appears that Pennsylvania is one of those states where it just doesn't take very much at all to be approved to run a nursing home, which is not good policy. Nursing homes are were basically at this point little hospitals. And you know, the state needs to make sure that people that are running them know what they're doing. When states get burned, they're gonna naturally respond. And an example uh, is Kansas. Kansas is another state that had a number of skyline buildings in it, in response to the receivership that was created, um, the state just passed legislation that was supported and advocated by the sector that created a real due diligence process for a change of ownership. And one of the things that we're looking at as part part of our package of starting to take responsibility for some of these poor performers is whether we should be going to the state's that don't have a thorough vetting process and encourage them to get one in the same way that Kansas has done. Interesting. All right. Well, definitely keep us posted on that as it goes forward. But uh, I want to switch gears a little bit now and get to kind of the other big thing going on in the nursing home world now is obviously PDPM. We're still on track, at least last I checked, for implementation on October 1st. But I was kind of interested in your thoughts about this is a question that I like to ask leaders in the industry is, you know, what's a bigger issue right now for nursing home operators? Is it PDPM or is it Medicaid? Because, you know, while everyone was sort of watching the PDPM ball, we saw a lot of stress in various states, Wisconsin being a primary example of Massachusetts, where nursing homes are really struggling with low Mm -hmm. Medicaid rates. And I think it's something that I have to remind myself a lot when I look at my coverage of the industry is, okay, you know, PDPM is a big sea change, but the reality is for most buildings, right. Medicare is, you know, at most 20% of their income and that, that could be if they're lucky. So, you know, I was kind of curious for your take on what is, you know, what's the bigger issue right now uh, facing nursing homes? Is it adjusting to PDPM or is it the fact that, you know, Medicaid is strained in a lot of places and not getting any better? If I could only fix one of the two, I would fix Medicaid. You know, the crisis that we have in the sector right now from a financial point of view is not Medicare crisis, it's a Medicaid crisis, and it's the the chronic underfunding of Medicaid in many states in the country. The reason it's probably a hard question for some of the folks that you talk to to answer is that it's a have and have not situation with Medicaid. There are some states where the Medicaid reimbursement is okay. You know, members come pretty close to what the actual costs are. And then there are a majority of states where the Medicaid reimbursement is just awful. And, you know, part of the known reality of running a nursing facility in those states is you're going to lose a whole bunch of money on Medicaid. So if I could just fix one, I guess it would be the Medicaid underfunding, but we don't feel like we can fix this one. We, we feel like we have a, a shot at creating both a fair Medicaid system and a, and a good Medicare system. And PDPM is right in front of us, so it is incredibly important. We're spending most of our time right now helping the members get ready for PDPM and then working with CMS to make sure that it gets rolled out in the right way and 
that when the inevitable glitches occur, we'll be in a position to get them fixed. We're, I think you you know you you guys make the news, and so you know that most of the sector is pretty pretty excited about PDPM, and our membership reflects that as well. I think that there's just a general dissatisfaction with the current system um, and its incredible dependence upon therapy, and a real excitement about being able to look at our residents and patients in a new way and providing you know new and additional treatments. Um, beyond just providing therapy. And so I think, you know, the sector's pretty excited and and we are too. Yeah, I, I do think it's funny. It's kind of the first time that I've seen new regulations come out from the government and everyone be more or less on board with it, you know, from the operators themselves to the investors to the federal government. You know, everyone seems to be all in on this. And it, it, it just strikes me as a little funny because it's, you know, for an industry that's heavily regulated, a new regulation comes out and everyone is excited about it. If there's anything that worries me is the fact that everybody is so certain this is going to be a great thing. And I'm, I'm old enough to, to have seen multiple situations where when the whole crowd agrees, you know, you often get surprised negatively. But hopefully that won't occur here and this will turn out really well. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of the other side of the coin is that because it's revenue neutral for every, you know, quote unquote revenue winner, there's going to be a quote unquote revenue loser. So I think that's that's the one right. reason that I stay a little skeptical of getting too far into the PDPM optimism because, you know, it as of right now, it's a closed system. So, you know, every action is going to have a negative reaction. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. So just, uh, I know, because you have your finger on the pulse on it, there's a, where still all systems go for PDPM on uh, October 1st, no indication of delays. I know that those rumors always go around every once in a while, especially with a new system as, you know, sweeping as this. We talk with CMS almost every day and some, some days more than once. And they're 100% go on October 1 and have at no point in the last year have they ever said, hey, you know, we have a contingency plan in case we don't go live October 1. And I think there were some skeptics about whether or not it would be ready by then, but I think CMS has really gotten its act together and worked hard on this. I think most providers have, and so we fully expect it to go live October 1. Got it. Shifting back to Medicaid, and I wanted to get your perspective because not only are you the, you know, the leader of a major trade group, but you are also the former governor of a state. So I'm kind of curious to, for all the people who are listening and, you know, you mentioned there are some states where Medicaid is bad, you know, the reimbursements really aren't good and you, you know, you're going to lose money on it. What can operators do if they're in one of those states where, you know, the rates are really low and they're not making money and it's really becoming a crisis, you know, Wisconsin is seeing a wave of closures. What are sort of the, the mechanisms they have to get lawmakers' attention, to get the government's attention, and to really make a difference in trying to rectify the situation? Well, unfortunately, the easiest way to get state legislators to respond is when buildings actually close. And we've seen that across the country where, for example, you know, recently there have been some significant cl- number of closures in Massachusetts, and the legislature has responded with some increases in Medicaid. Same thing in South Dakota, significant number of closures, um, and then a response, same thing this year in Nebraska. But, you know, the issue is how do you get legislators to respond before that? Because the last thing you want are building closures. These building closures are not just a statistic. It's people that live in these buildings that have to be moved, oftentimes significant different distances, particularly in the rural states. And not only is it is it tough for an older person to move, it becomes then really difficult because they're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 miles away from their whole support system. 
it was just it's just a very bad thing. So I think the issue for us is how do we get the state legislature's attention before closures occur? And that's very difficult. You know, we're in the process right now of, of doing some studies that analyze in what we think are very vulnerable states the the number of buildings that might close in the future so that we can, you know, go to legislators and say, hey, this is not just theoretical. Here, here are the numbers. And if you don't act now in the next two, three, four, five years, you're going to see these types of closures. And then there are other successful lobbying efforts that have been employed in other states where, you know, members are just very united. Oftentimes they get residents and family members involved. Sometimes in some states they get labor unions involved. And they've been successful in going to legislators and getting some, you know, decent increases. But short of actual closures, it's very, very hard. Yeah. And I would say in a lot of cases, it's it's just a perception issue, right? You know, one of the number one things that I always go to when people, you know, if I'm at a party or, at a, you know, at dinner and someone asks me what I do for a living and I talk about, you know, covering long term health care issues, I always drop the fun fact that, you know, Medicaid is, you know, 62 percent of people in nursing homes in the United States are on Medicaid as of 2017. And, you know, people, you know, my age, people who are, you know, in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, even, who don't really think about this have no clue of that. They have no idea that Medicaid is such a key source of revenue for nursing homes. And frankly, I didn't know that until I started covering this beat. So, you know, is is there a way to just, is it also just a lot about like publicizing the fact that Medicaid equals elder care? I think that's a really good point and a really good strategy. And the one time that we were quite successful in doing that was during the discussion of repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Our talking point up on the Hill was that the Medicaid reform was bad on a whole variety of levels. But one of the reasons it was reasons it was bad is that Medicaid in, long, in long-term care is really a middle-class benefit, that there are you know middle-class people that are going to outlive the normal life expectancy. They're going to need to live in long-term care. They're going to need Medicaid. And that message really resonated. And you saw a lot of the senators and members of Congress on the Hill repeating that message. And I think it was a, you know, a good reason that a big part of the reason that we had some success in that debate. But yeah, I think further, if we can somehow get out to the masses that particularly in the later stages of life, Medicaid is not just there for poor people. It's there for, you know, normal income, middle income type people that just happen to live a very long period of time. I think that can be a very effective lobbying point. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm doing my best at uh, <laughs> every time I have a chance to talk right. about what I do for a living. <laughs> I'm doing my best to spread that message. I'm right. one man, <laughs> one man advocacy group. Right. But tell me a little bit about uh, as we're we're getting toward the the end of our time here. But I'm kind of curious about the other goals. You know that the organization is working on on the Hill. You know, we talked about PDPM. We talked about Medicaid. Are there any other big issues, or you know, if, if those are kind of yeah? The, I mean, so we we think of ourselves as a as hopefully a lobbying and political powerhouse, but we also think of ourselves as a think tank. And, you know, about a third of the people here work on our quality issues, creating solutions for our members, creating turnkey solutions for the Hill. Like any provider organization, we have all the normal goals that you would expect on the Hill, you know, to not get cut and to hopefully create a great regulatory environment and all that. But we also have every year a set of goals that we set on the quality front. Our view is that we need to not just be a political lobbying powerhouse, but we need to help the sector continue to improve on quality. And so 
about a third of our people in the organization work on all of that. We put together turnkey solutions for our membership. We measure how we're doing as a sector. We set specific goals for the sector, and we hold ourselves accountable to those. And so, yeah, we're worried about not getting cut on the hill and getting PDPM right, but we're also focused on helping our members reduce their rehospitalization rate and reduce their use of antipsychotics and all of the other measures that CMS wants us to focus on. And all of that's gone well. And that's why it is frustrating that when we're doing that and those measures are going well, that we're getting all the regulatory chatter, which again, you know, we understand it's, it's just part of, the, part of the deal, but it can get frustrating at times. When you look at all of our goals, you know, avoiding cuts, getting our market basket increase, PDPM rollout going well, um, getting some regulatory relief, and then the quality improvements across the country, we're, we're actually having a pretty good year. Things are going quite well. Yeah. And I guess my last question as we uh, as we wrap up here is, you know, there's always a lot of talk about what is the nursing home and what does the nursing home industry look like in five, 10 years? And how is it different from today? Uh, in your view, working with your members, working with policymakers, you know, what do you think the industry will look like in five or 10 years? You know, is it going to be more like a mini hospital? Is that just going to keep moving, like you said, or is there going to be a whole new model coming down the pike? Yeah, I think in five to 10 years, it'll look pretty much physically the same. There, you know, It's just not possible to rebuild the whole sector in, in that short of a period of time. But mm-hmm. I think from a care perspective, it'll be fundamentally changed. The successful providers will be the ones that have taken available opportunities out there to control populations. The successful providers will often be their own insurance companies. They'll be their own institutional special needs plans and probably have branched out into the community. So that the nursing facility is really the focal point of care for older people and people that are approaching aging within that community. Operators that don't do that are just at risk of becoming a commodity in other payment models, and that's really not sustainable. So I think you'll see more and more providers becoming managed care plans, more and more providers getting into population health management outside of the walls of their buildings. And those are the folks that provided that they also provide exceptional quality will be not only survive, but will thrive over the next five to 10 years. I think people that hold on to the old payment models and the old role that we played in various networks are, are not going to do very well. Yeah. Adaptation is uh, is the name of the game in uh, in nursing homes and elsewhere. But anyway, thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time today. I appreciate bet. having you on the show and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.